you. I'm Hannah. I'm Lisa. And there's, there's a way that we'd like to start today's uh, session, just because this is the way we start all our episodes. Um, here we go. The Stoop. The Stoop. The Stoop. Stories from across the Black Diaspora. That we need to talk about. My cousins were water and grease girls, and I couldn't be a water and grease girl. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm talking about, ballerina in the hood. We be gonna get you anointed, people. When a black woman walks up to the desk in labor, what preconceived notions do you have about her? I didn't even know we had a hair shark. All right, so that's the way we start every episode for those who know, and if you don't know, now you know. Uh, we just wrapped up our second season of The Stoop. We're very excited about that. Yes. Um, and you know, we've learned a lot uh, doing one season one and then season two. And so that's why we're here, trying to share some of that knowledge with you guys. And today it's about audience. Um, and audience is really something that you don't really think about a lot when you're starting a project. You just kind of want to make your thing and produce it, right, in the best way possible. Um, but it will be brought to your attention quickly <laughs> in the process because we started to be, get asked over and over and over again this question, just like, who is your audience, right? Who is your audience? Who are you talking to? Um, and the reason why they ask, and when I say they, it's it's networks, it's um, you know editors, and so I think one of the reasons kind of makes sense because if they're trying to do their marketing and advertising, they you know they 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 want to know because audience is a formula to making money. Um, but it's a question that, you know, you just have to deal with. Right. And I think for us, the question, we were really hesitant to answer that question at first because we thought it was, you know, putting us in this category. And, it, and we thought, you know, well, what if our audience changes? Um, and, we, and we actually, and we thought it, actually having to say who our audience is was, was making assumptions about who we're talking to. Like, if we say we're talking to a specific group of people, does that exclude another group of people? So mm -hmm. we were very, you know, we were very hesitant about sort of trying to define our podcast in the beginning. Um, and then we started realizing that defining it actually kept us grounded. Um, and defining it actually held us like closer to our mission for this podcast and, and help us define a mission statement, which is de definitely something we did early, early on to really have a focus. Um, mm -hmm. But it's all started with this, this question, right? Like, right. who are we talking to? Yeah. Um, and we thought, you know, we knew who we were talking to, right? It's the Stoop podcast, Stories from Across the Black Diaspora. So we knew that we would be bringing up topics that the black pe people from all over the diaspora are talking about. We, we gathered they would be women. Yeah. Maybe what age Black group? Black women. We Black thought, women. Right. We thought like 
Around our age. That's what we so thought. So like in our early 20s. Early, yeah, mid-20s, mid-20s. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, so we thought it would, you know, we're talking to people that look like us. We, were, we wanted to, we had started these conversations in the kitchen of our radio station that we used to work at together. Hana's still there, I'm not there anymore. But, and we were like, let's put these conversations into podcast form. So we thought we were talking to people that look like us and we were okay with that. Yeah, and we created the podcast with that in mind. Um, and in fact, our very, very first episode, which is now an award-winning episode, we're so yes, excited. Yes, yes. It got Best Documentary at the NABJ, the National Association of Black Journalists uh, Conference, which we're really excited about. Um, we put a lot of work into this episode, and it was um, asking the question, is, cul is it cultural appropriation when African Americans wear African clothing or African-inspired clothing. We're going to wear African medallions. We're going to throw on dashikis because we're proud and we're black and we're African. And that influenced me to be like, word, like, I, you know, I, I'm African. I know where I'm from. Like, I should rock that stuff too. Because I do love to ask them where is it from and, and what tribe and, and what does it represent? And if they don't know, I'll let them know. I'll tell them to take it off. So you're offended by someone you don't know living on a continent thousands of miles away wearing an African fabric print? Seriously? Seriously? I can't begin to explain how shallow and self-centered that is. As a free man, you have no right to tell me what I can or cannot wear. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That freaked us out yesterday. We were like, who is that? Oh, is that us? Sorry. That's in the tape. Lots of feelings in that episode. We went deep and we talked about stuff that, you know, I know we talk about in our communities. I'm of a Sudanese American background, kind of the immigrant black perspective. Leela is African American. They, you know, I, she talks about stuff, we talk about stuff, and we just bring that stuff together and talk about it. Um, and so we got some comments. Uh, about this episode, of course. And one of the comments um, that we got from kind of uh, editors or people who are not reporters was that how about you need, you need to like broaden what it meant? Like, what do you mean by Africans, African-Americans wearing clothing, what, what, all of that? Find a way to explain it to a broader audience. And we knew a broader audience meant the white audience, right, of public media that we know. Um, and one comment was, and we were at a point where this was our first episode. We were, you know, we were asking a lot of people. We wanted to make sure we were doing the right thing. We were reaching people. We were, we had advisors that we talked to. So there were a lot of hands yeah. in this pot. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's what you do when you start a project like this. You want all these different people to give you input. And it's a great idea, but it can also really, really be confusing um, because you have so many different perspectives. Yeah, so this one comment um, was, you know, make it more relatable, explain what you mean. So this is what we ended up doing. Yep, some people are saying that's appropriation. Controversial. And this issue of fashion appropriating culture isn't new. 
Remember back in 2012, I don't know if you remember this, but the Navajo Nation actually sued Urban Outfitters for their Navajo-inspired line. Yeah, yeah, they were selling things like, what was it? Navajo Navajo hipster hipster panties. panties. (laughs) There's actually a law called the Indian Arts and Crafts Act, and it basically prohibits, quote, misrepresentation in marketing of Indian arts and craft products in America. The Navajo got that trademark on lockdown. So that was our kind of a way for the general audience to understand what we're talking about when we're talking about cultural appropriation was like, remember that news item that most of you guys will probably have gone by, right? Like when Urban Outfitters did this thing. And it's like, it's interesting now because I listened to that. Urban Outfitters specifically, just so everybody gets it. Yeah. And and we were basically like... um, when I listen to it now, I feel so uncomfortable because I'm like, we did not have to do that. Mm-mm. You know, we did not have to do that. It was, it is, it is not always needing another reference for another audience to get it. I feel that it was gotten within the podcast, but you know, we live and we learn. Right. And so after that, we talked about this stuff a lot. Right. Um, and for example, in this episode called coming to America about, um, what immigrants wish they knew before they came here, <laughs> Um, and so we started off the episode with the scene uh, of him, Weddy Murphy, going in to get a haircut. So he goes into this barbershop and he wants to get a jerry curl. It's the 80s. Ooh, jerry curl. Hana, did you have a jerry curl? I did not ever get a jerry curl, but did you? I totally had a jerry curl. It was a shag. I was like the female oh version of El DeBarge. It was so cute. I mean, I had, I would put my, I would spray my spritz in it so it wouldn't get too juicy wet, but it still had like mm. a nice sheen. Anyway, so I did have a soul glow. He never got a soul glow. He never did. So what did we not do there? We did not explain what a jerry curl was. And that's fine. Um, so that's an, a decision that we made, right? Like we are not, you know, we, we talk about it. We know who does not know who, who does know what a jerry curl is. Okay. All right. All right. Eighties, Michael Jackson, mm-hmm. Elder Barge. Like Elder Barge. Said, Elder Barge. So that was, that was a time. And then again, like we're picking and we're, we're, it's a dance, right? It's picking and choosing. It's picking your battles. And, and in this case, we were like, no, we don't think we want to explain what a Jerry Curl is. If you don't know it, maybe you can Google it. Look it up. Ask somebody. Ask an African. Ask an African. We say in our podcast quite frequently. Ask an African-American. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then when we were asked to do uh, a version of another episode we did called... Um, are you a 4C, which is about the hair chart? Um, we did it for our feed, but then we were asked to do a version for a major podcast. So yeah, we did um, We did one of our episodes um, we produced for 99% Invisible, and we knew it had a, a different audience. So when I worked on this piece um, with them, you know, it was a really different way of thinking about how to produce this piece. And we'll share something with you now. Of the Afro. The Jerry Curl was all about fun. So 
to have a jerry curl, you had to have all of that activator and so much stuff, and you had to use it every single day. The jerry curl was a very moisturized style. The activator that you had to put in your hair every day was drippy and greasy, and your pillow would be stained with it. Wearing a shower cap in public was quite normal. I know all of this because when I was a kid, I had one. <laughs> all you, Leela, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, so I did have, like, going back to the Jerry Kogan. Um, But yeah, it was, I wanted to share this example because it was a almost automatic code switching that I did with not without even thinking about it. Um, of course, we did not explain the Jerry Curl in our podcast, but when we're working with another outlet, it was definitely like, how do I explain this? How do I explain this how I want to explain it? And there was a question that came up is like the Soul Glow song comes on, and a lot of some of you haven't seen uh, Coming to America, and it was this question like, should we reference, you know, that that's the song from Coming to America whenever someone has a Jerry Curl, the song comes on, it's kind of funny. If you've seen the movie, it's kind of like, oh yeah, I get it. But if you haven't, but you know, it was just a decision, an editorial decision. It's like, no, we don't need to do that. We're already explaining what the Jerry Curl is. So there's these little, little factors that come into place, but I was really, um, I, I don't know, we had this conversation about how it was like, look at how this was written. Like, automatically you start to explain it, and it's just something, you know. We're just we're, used to doing that. We're conditioned to doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that was an example of that. Yeah, and then you were talking one day to a very successful podcaster yeah, white man. Yeah, so um, I, I was. Um, I had mentioned this question of audience to um, a colleague who's a very successful podcaster. He's white, male, um, and about how we were really defining our audience and how we have this whole actually little uh, presentation, a kind of like keynote presentation about like what our podcast is about. And, and that we're constantly, 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 asked. constantly asked to, to define our audience. Who is your audience? Who is know it? who you're talking to. Exactly. Um, and he said, I've never been asked that question. Ever. And he also told me, and I don't think I'd want to define my audience because I think it would compromise how I would make my product, my show. Um, and that made me think. Right? Like, okay. So, you know, why was it that we were constantly being asked to define our audience? Um, And should we do it? Like, that was a moment where I was like, wait, should we be doing this? Should we not be? But um, the the reality is, is that, you know, these these, uh, definitions are used to market your product. um, And they are also used to sort of make you feel like, they aren't capable of marketing marketing mm-hmm. your product. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so you might be approached by a network or have conversations with people that say, um, we love what you do, this is really great, but we're really not sure how to market this podcast, which is bullshit. Um, so yeah, that, that came up. Okay. So, so, but in general, in podcasting, you have this, you know, we come from a public radio background. There's you know, a hierarchy of like producers and editors and a lot of people looking at what what you're making and podcasting, you have a little bit of more freedom um, to not over explain and not what what Leela calls and you have to read her manifesto in transom. She wrote all about this radio splaining. Yeah. Did you coin that? I think you coined. Has anybody heard of radio splaining? No, obviously you coined not. it. 
congratulations. I don't know if I feel, no one raised their hand about no, hearing d- Nobody, <laughs> these are radio people. So now, now it's yours. Um, so we're gonna do something a little different right now. Just a b- right about now. We'd like to introduce someone to you. Uh, Mr. Doctor, actually, Chioki Ianson is an instructor in the Department of African American Studies in the College of Humanities and Sciences at Virginia Commonwealth University. Many of you, yes, many of you might recognize him as the voice of NPR. He does the credits. And we've asked him to do a little something for us today. He will be slow jamming our takeaways from today's session. Um, And so take it away, Chioki. Hey, girl. (laughs) I got some takeaways for you. Yeah. Okay. Define your audience. Be able to say who they are. Now you may just find out your intended audience ain't listening. But don't be afraid. Don't shy away. Understand from the start that it's your voice that's bringing people to you. You aren't alienating a soul. Nah, you're just doing you. Yeah. You will never listen to the NPR credits the same again after this session, I swear. Um, Yeah, so he talked about reaching your audience because there's this, you know, this huge contradiction sometimes. Like we did, we spent so much time defining our audience. We know exactly who's listening. We know who we're talking to. And then you may find, like we did, that you aren't reaching them. The people that are actually listening weren't your intended audience. Um, we knew that public radio um, wouldn't really be our intended audience. Uh, we know that it's, it's, it's mostly a white, older audience, that's fact. Um, and kind of the public radio model might, you know, not be totally working for us. So, you know, we had to kind of create the care. We had to actually, you know, go out and create our audience, um, reach out and partner with organizations and with publications that were more diverse, that were black, that were, you know, talking about, you know, we knew they would get what we're talking about or they would have some interest in what we're talking about. We were also, you know, interested, I mean, you want everybody at the end of the day to listen to your podcast, right? But the specific topics we were talking about, we were like, because remember one time we went, we had this event when we were first starting out and we went to this event and it was kind of a back and forth with clips from our episodes and like the best clips from our episodes. And the audience was majority white. And so we thought we had these nice like quips and, and jokes and, and stuff and just like crickets in the, in the audience. Like, cause no, nobody got it. Do you remember that? I do. Oh, I don't like to Lila. remember that. <laughs> I don't like to remember that. But you know, I mean, you live and you learn. And I think that like one of the things that, um, about intended audience is that, um, like we had very specific goals in mind about who we were trying to reach and then started realizing that that wasn't always the case. And it was from the feedback that we were getting, emails, DMs, like people saying, I'm a 35-year-old white male in in middle America, and I heard this episode about 
black women's hair texture, and I never even thought about this. And, and, and we're getting so many responses from people saying, We love you know, being a fly on the wall and just listening and yeah. learning. And that was, that was really, you know, we, we felt really great about that. Um, so even though I think what it, what it did was made us realize that we can go through all these, like, kind of, this is who we are, and this is our brand, and this is what we're going to do, but realize, like, it was more for a mission statement to keep us focused than it was, like, who we were reaching. And, and then when we did decide that we, when we tried to reach out to um, get more of, like, people of color to listen, especially we were really focusing on Africans for a while. Uh, you know, we did some interviews with radio stations and we did South South in Africa. South Africa. Um, we are constantly reaching out to radio stations that have a larger black listenership to listen. Black um, Australians, we were in on, on the ABC in Australia. Yeah, and we also reach out to, uh, like we did a partnership with Al Jazeera where we went to Curl Fest, which was this uh, festival for girls with curly hair, and they did a, a video with us kind of just to highlight, you know, some of the diverse topics that we're talking about. So we are constantly, constantly trying to forge these partnerships to build Afropunk. our audience. And yeah, we're collaborating with Afropunk as well. And the latest one? And we're going to be doing some collaboration with the Apollo Theater. Apollo! Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And now, uh, would y'all like to hear another takeaway? Yes? Yes. Okay. Dim those lights, girl. <laughs> oh, yeah, we back at it again, y'all. Proactively seek out your audience. Partner with places that have a similar agenda. Offer content that can enhance their content. Position yourself as a source. Yeah. Snap, 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 snap. Thank you, Chioki. We love ourselves some Chioki. Um, speaking of his lovely voice and how he talks, uh, we also, something else what, that we always talk about when we're talking about audience is our delivery and how we talk. And I mean, our podcast was very purposefully conversational, right? It's the stoop. The whole idea was it's the front stoop of your house where you have, you know, you have your lemonade and you're munching on something with your friends and family and you're talking about this stuff that if somebody else walks over, that conversation stops those conversations. And so we knew that our delivery was going to be natural. And it was a learning process because again, we're both reporters in public radio. I'm, I'm hosty, I have that hosty voice. She is a reporter, editor. And so for us to switch and all of a sudden be conversational and you know, like that, it was a process, it was, it was hard and there was a point where it was like, will people continue to take us seriously? You know, because one minute we're the news journalist and the other minute we're kind of the casual stoop person. That's something we had to think about. We decided we can be both and people need to get used to it, that we are, uh, we have many sides to us, all of us, and one does not take anything from the other. We also decided to use our colloquialisms and our slang. And if you get it, you get it. If you don't get it, maybe again, ask an African. That's something we like to say a lot. Um, just, you know, you can, 
because that's authenticity, right? That's, that's you being you and it's relatable and you become real and you become vulnerable also, part of it is. Um, but in a newsroom, in, you know, when you're in that newsroom, sometimes, you know, not sometimes, always, you have editors, you have a certain image, and there are lots of gatekeepers there. So sometimes you have to push back a little bit if you want to use a certain term in your reporting. Um, and so you might go back and forth with an editor, as we always encourage everybody to do anyway. Right? Make sure it's your voice that it is in that final script that you are saying. This is your story. I'm getting into some training here. Um, so this is an example from our good friend Nadej Green, a reporter from Miami, about the language that she chooses. My name is Nadej Green, and I'm a reporter at WLRN, the NPR affiliate in Miami, Florida. A few years ago, I started reporting more on gun violence and the impact that gun violence has um, on a community beyond just the crime story. And I knew in my head, I told myself, I'll say, man, this is this the only time you ever going to be able to do this. Like after this, they finna close the coffin. You're never going to see your daughter again. And many of these funerals are in black neighborhoods. Um, in the black Christian church is where the funerals happen and the funeral directors, and in church, you call it a homegoing service. Recently, Wright and Young Funeral Home planned a homegoing service for one of its youngest victims of gun violence. I remember the first time I used homegoing service in one of my stories, my editor asked me, she wasn't familiar with the term, and I explained to her that that is how in the Black Christian church, the Black American Christian church, that is what a, a funeral is referred to as, a homegoing service. To let everybody know he's just only just a baby. He was just a child. At Wright and Young Within funeral, the context of the story, it was very clear that we were talking about a funeral. But it mattered to me that I was able to call it a homegoing service and not just a funeral because it's also what the community uh, refers to it as. And it, it carries to me in the black community a different weight. When someone says homegoing service, you receive that. And how we talk about communities matter, but also how communities talk about themselves matter and that we didn't have to define what a homegoing service was. I think if you listen to the piece, you understood what that was. But how we name things and how the community names things matters um, and how we center those voices or not also matters. A princess, something familiar from outside of the somber proceedings. I'm Nadege Green in Miami. So we use that example with Nadege um, because for, for two reasons. She had said that it makes her feel more like herself, right? Um, and that is it's something that's just so important, I think, also for some of the managers and editors that are here in the room today to just take note of um, of how empowering it felt for her to use language that made her feel like herself. Someone heard this clip yesterday, another reporter at another um, station, and said, I used the same word in a report, and they made me do the explanatory comma. A homegoing service is a fill-in-the-blank. Um, and so, you know, it's different for everyone. Not everyone's going to have the same experience that, you know, Nadej had an editor who was open to her using the language she wanted to use. It's not, this, it's not the same story for everyone. 
Um, but also, you know, there's this, uh, there's this immediate like assumption that the default is white listenership. And when you allow reporters of color to use language that they might use within their own communities, I think it, you know, it can broaden the audience, it can make things more accessible, and more importantly, it just makes a reporter feel more like they're in a space where they're creating something that's true to the identity. And so we're talking a lot about voice and tone right now because they're, you know, it's all tied together. Um, and Hana had a recent conversation that she's going to share with us. With somebody, and I won't introduce this person because uh, I think a lot of you know who this person is. I couldn't help myself. I had to speak the way I speak. Mm. And, I, and, I'm, and it's great because there's not one way to do anything. Um, growing up, we heard the three anchors on uh, national news and thought that that was the way people had to talk, even though that was never the way you spoke on the schoolyard, at work, mm -hmm. with your friends, mm -hmm. at church. And to pretend that that was a way I would tell stories just seemed wrong, especially mm -hmm. when you're telling stories, I think. Right. Because when you're telling stories, you really want to get into your own voice because that puts you into your own perspective. Yeah, so does, any, does anyone know who that is? Glenn Washington, Snap Judgment, represent. Um, so yeah, Glenn is, is, is very much known for speaking the way he normally speaks. Um, and this conversation for some people is like, what are you talking about? What do you, what does that mean? Like, what do you, what do you, but I think for a lot of us, uh, you know, people will say you have a radio voice. Has, have anyone ever said that? Oh, that person like, yeah, her radio voice sounds like this. And then you talk to them in person and they have to sound completely different. Um, like that's what we are hoping to get away from. Like we want to sound the same on the radio as we do in person. One of the ways that we have, uh, well, one of the things we've tried is uh, when we first started with the stoop, we would script everything and we would write into tape and we would read that script and write into, in, into the tape. That made us sound like our news selves. It, it didn't, it just sounded so stiff and it just didn't sound right. And so eventually what we started doing is just doing bullet points, knowing these are the things that we want to hit. And then we would write our last bullet point into the tape. Like if it was a name that we had to introduce, you know, this is, you know, Glenn Washington, you know, we take away Glenn sort of thing. Um, but it, it really did help us sound a lot more relaxed and a lot more conversational. Um, so that worked for us. And please don't lose your accents. Long time ago, uh, I, that's, that's, what, that's how we were taught. And I'm not going to date myself, but anyway, it was a long time ago. And there was this neutral radio voice that you had to have. Um, and they literally said, if you have a Southern drawl, get rid of it. If you have this, get rid of it, you know? And now that is not the case. You know, we want you to sound like you sound. And don't, and don't feel like you need to sound like the public radio voice either, because that is a voice. That is a thing. You don't need to sound like that either. Sound like yourself. And the more we sound like ourselves, the more audiences will get used to the fact that we are diverse, right? Um, so I really want to bring that home, that make your bullet points, that way there will be more of you and less of what you were like trained to do. It's like almost unlearning some things that, we, that we've learned um, uh, early, early on. And so, yeah. ooh, he's back. When you compromise, that's when you start to lose yourself. 
Your voice, your confidence belongs to you and no one else. You don't need so many hands stirring all up in your pot. Just surround yourself by a hand-chosen few whose opinions you trust a lot. An advisor? Yeah, that's right. Look at them and say, Is this shit all wrong? Is it sad? Or does it slay? He didn't say the yeah. I'll say it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, um, we talked a little about, about the possible tensions uh, that could arise when creating a podcast for a specific audience. We really uh, did wanted to do this, this, the stoop, because we thought that there were these conversations that we just really needed to have. But mm-hmm. one of the issues that, would, that came up was, um, are we giving away too much? Are we being a little are too we... authentic? Yes. And not just in the way we were talking, but there's conversations that happen within our community and things that we kind of like to ignore and we don't like to talk about in public and we like to think that they're not there. And we had this, this fear of... of like not presenting a united front as black people, mm-hmm. right? We have these conversations, like when we expose some divisions and some issues, are we presenting something that's not a united sort of front? And especially, should we worry about that if our audience isn't our intended audience, right? right? Yeah. Um, um, because some people were not happy with some of our episodes, some people from within our black communities who thought, I think... You know, it comes from a good place that we are few. So for 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 this, like one of very few podcasts about blackness to go into some, you know, tense areas b- between our communities, they felt that was um, that might create divisions within the communities. And this was from Pan-Africans who really like spent their whole lives trying to gather all black people together. And, and our thing was from a point of, no, black is not a monolith. And we can be diverse and varied and complicated and complex, and that should be okay. Um, but here is one uh, example of an episode that we got some people who were not too happy about. When I was growing up in Texas, um, I was called African booty scratcher. What does it mean? I don't know. I have a feeling it just means you Africans who are, you know, you don't have any clothes probably and you're poor and you're so poor that you're just standing there all backward and pathetic scratching your booties, I guess. That's so weird. Who called you it? It was the black kids. Yeah. So that was part of that episode um, called, you called me African what? Uh, And so I talked about kind of how I was treated by some black children when I was young. This was the 80s. This was the time of we are the world and the Ethiopian famine was happening. And and then, but Leela also had her things. Uh, I, I brought up kind of some mean African immigrant words that are used kind of against black Americans, right? That, that there's this thing going on both ways and we discussed it, we brought in folks who talked about it and I think at the end we reached a point 
that point of unity, I guess some people didn't reach that end, didn't listen to the end. Uh, and so that's why we got some, some angry responses. Yeah, so it's just something to think about because I think a lot of us are doing these podcasts that really dig deep into very personal and very um, sensitive issues. And you are going to piss people off and people are not going to you know, agree with, with what you're doing. And I think it was really interesting too because the kind of response that we got that was more concerned with the episode was from an older audience as well. And I think that's why we wanted to do the Stoop Podcast, because there's so many older listeners that aren't used to having these types of conversations. But when we're like on Twitter and like hearing like the feedback from the podcast version went on iTunes and pe younger people that are listening to podcasts, they're like loving these conversations, right? They're so living this, them. They're living them mm -hmm. and they're discussing them. But it was the older folks um, that we noticed that were actually... Like, we're not used to this, and this is stuff that you were, you were not supposed to be talking about. Um, so it's just something something to think about, that you're definitely going to get pushback. But there is <laughs> And our, our response to that, by the way, it was like a formal letter signed by a number of organizations, like that. Um, from the younger people, like you were mentioning, like out of the like 150 comments on the iTunes, it was like one or two people were like, you're, you know, this is causing division. But it was, it was a letter. And so what we did was we wrote back a nice letter kind of explaining what we're doing and explaining that the end of that episode, you know, and we linked to the episode. Um, and we invited them on the stoop to come and talk about this because this is a very, it, it's a very stoopy topic. What should you be able to talk about and what is off limits? right? Because you're airing the dirty laundry of, a, of communities. We never received a, um, a response to that. So they never came on the stoop. So that, I mean, that for us was an opportunity, but it was a lost opportunity. But we hope, we hope, uh, we hope to reach what more people. Right here is go back. What we're going to do right here is go back, way back, back into time. Like my grandma always said, oh, you gonna piss somebody off, but it ain't the end of the world. Your show should have a mission statement and you gotta stand by it even when you feel like you failed. Every time that you have doubt about how people might not get it, ask yourself this question. Are we true to our mission and our project? Stand strong, move on. You can even turn that bad feedback into an episode. Oh, you gonna piss somebody off, but always remember this. You got into this work to push yourself, challenge others, and I think we all agree. Baby, brush it off. Cause you got a podcast to feed. Oh yeah, y'all. Yes, you do. Can we give it a hand for Chioki for yes, our, giving our takeaways today? Thank you, that was great, and I already subscribed. <laughs> I learned about stupid conversations when I moved to Chicago from Minnesota, so I'm with you, that's cool. My question was, you said you didn't feel right about the Urban Outfitters uh, section. Was it because you called out a national company and pointed out that they had done something egregious, or was that you had explained the situation that maybe you felt that you shouldn't have had to explain? Yeah, no, I had no problem calling out the company. It was more about, um, we were asked to explain 
We understand what the issue is for the question that you're getting at, cultural appropriation. Is it cultural appropriation for African-Americans to wear African clothing? We understand that that's what you're getting at, but we're not sure if a broader under audience can relate to that feeling. What is comparable? And then they had brought up, well, maybe the Urban Outfitters thing is comparable. It was comparable. just in the news, too. Yeah, it was just in the news. Um, maybe that's comp a comparable situation. And I just don't think it, it needed to be compared to anything. Um, I think that they have you know, similar issues, but I don't think you always need to have this comparison in order for a broader audience to understand what the tension is in the story. And we actually explain, we, go, we have this, listen to the episode. It is the first episode of The Stoop. You're gonna, gonna subscribe and listen, of course, of course. Um, but we actually kind of go in and define cultural appropriation, like as a definition. So, you know, yeah. doing that would, was probably enough. Right. In hindsight. Oh, there we go, okay. Sometimes I feel like as a black person, whenever I talk about subjects about blackness with other black people, it's fun, we have a good time, but sometimes, and no offense to white people, there's stuff I don't want them to know because no offense to white people, they kind of can ruin it sometimes. <laughs> How do you guys, do you guys ever run into that where it's like, you got people walking, hey, it's lit fam, and all that. Like, How do you guys like navigate those conversations when it's like, this is something we enjoy, we would like you not to ruin it. <laughs> It's that question of the secrets and the, the, like the special bonds within co within communities, right? I mean, we didn't have that. No white person coming to us like fam, 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 fam. We don't. Um, but we, I mean, we live in a culturally. I do now. You do too. Uh, we're out of San Francisco. Our station itself is a very diverse station. They're very like we live. I think among the most like um, the most like aware and woke people, I think, in the country who know not to do that, who know to kind of listen and learn and observe and, and kind of, that's it. Um, so, but yeah, have I, you- I also have just you feel like just from the listenership and the feedback that, that we've seen, it's been, it's been very, it's just been feeling really good to hear people say that I've listened, I appreciate it, and they, straight out say, I know this is not for me. I know this was not made for me, that but I'm learning and I'm passing this on to friends. I mean, that's what the type of feedback we're getting. Um, and, and the moments where we do feel like we're sharing too much, we have these conversations with each other all the time. Like, should we, we, do, should we say this? Do, do we, we want to go talk there? about this? And if we do open up this conversation, how are we going to balance it out? Like we're constantly thinking about that. And do yeah. we even talk about this? Yeah. Should this stay within our kind of on our stoop and that's it? So it is a conversation, yeah. It's hard to determine, I mean, the answer, we didn't answer the question. Um, I mean, if it feels, like you feel it, you feel it if this is something you really should not put on the airwaves for everybody. It's not for, you know, everybody's consumption. When you get to that point, you'll be like, yeah, not this one, yeah. Um, I'm wondering how you're measuring your success in engaging those communities that you said you really wanted to reach out more of the Africans, African American communities, and and how how is that going? How are you going about it, and how are you measuring whether you're doing a good job? Mm. Um, 
One of the things is like we're proactive about it. So when we do our season breakdown of all the episodes that we're doing, we have a list of collaborations breakdown of everyone we want to collaborate with. We have a list of radio stations that we want to get the Steve Bond that have a, a an audience that we want to reach. Um, and we're so, partnering with them. And we're, we're partnering with them. So we have we constantly have like it's a it's a complete like really structured breakdown of like what our target is. Um, and every episode that we make, we have some kind of partnership in some way. If it's print, if it's radio, if it's making a 20-minute episode into a four or five-minute episode for a morning edition or something like that, we're constantly doing something like that. And one of the cool things is, too, is on podcast feeds, you can see what areas of the world you're reaching. And so if, if we were on a South African radio station, we're like, oh my gosh, we have X amount of listeners now in South Africa. And so that is one way that we're, we're um, doing that as well. And there's also African you know, organizations that we're partnering with for our next season. So that's kind of how we're gauging it and just the feedback that we're getting. But it's hard to do the counting, the, yeah. the count, because I mean, for in terms of feedback, it's, 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 it's them reaching out to us, right? It's people reaching out on Twitter, commenting, commenting on the feed, commenting. So it's, it is, it is a, a, a tricky thing. So you just do what you need to be doing and do all these partnerships and make sure you are in the places that you want to be. And, you know, and, and that's it. <laughs> Hey, I wonder uh, what advice you have for editors who work with younger reporters, particularly younger reporters of color, who are clearly straining to sound like what they think public radio is supposed to sound like. Because I, I work at a member station. We're trying to get more diverse. We're hiring a lot of young reporters. And I don't want to be the stereotypical woke white editor saying, go sound like yourself. But at the same time, and this goes for white reporters and black reporters of a certain experience level, you can see them try so hard to sound like what they think they're supposed to sound like and not like themselves. And that leads to boring radio. Right. I mean, that's a, cult, a culture of the station. You have to change from within the station. Um, we, we do have some editors here, some that we love that I see way back there. Yeah, I wonder if there's an editor in the house. I, I wonder if there's a wonderful, awesome stoop editor who, stooped, who edited some stoops. That's Jen Chen, um, who is an editor for The Stoop and now um, an editor with Reveal News. Hi, Jen. Hi. Um, do you want me to try sure. to talk, speak to that? Thank you. I think, well, to me, part of it is having diversity at the editor level. That helps a lot. Um, because as, as woke or as great uh, as an editor and a human as you are, it does make a difference for, um, especially for younger reporters, I think, to see people who look like them or close to look like them, at least, like in those leadership positions. So even if you say, I want you to do this, the unspoken message from who they see and what else has, what else or who else has been successful is telling them a different message. So if no one else sounds like them, you know, or if other reporters of color have not been promoted or have not stayed at your outlet, then I think it can be um, scary to step forward and take that risk if no one else in your shop has taken that risk before. Even if, even if you're literally saying to them, I want you to do that, it can be hard. Especially, I don't know your shop at all, but if it's, if it's just you saying that and not higher-ups or not anyone else around, so I would say that, like, 
it's a cultural thing of the whole of the whole outlet. Um, I think also just like on a practical level, pointing out maybe some other successful people out there to those reporters, like this person did it, like Glenn Washington, or you know maybe something. I don't know. Maybe you're in a newsroom, so maybe that's not the most appropriate example, but. Some other reporters who you admire, and not like you should sound like them, but here are people who sound like themselves, and um, and it doesn't also it also doesn't have to be just like people of color either. I'm thinking of that NPR reporter. Uh, I think his name's Wade Goodwin. Does anyone know how that like yeah. Texan? Yeah. Just sounds like a Texan guy, and I love that. So pointing out examples like that to sort of prove that you're right that they should. Thank you, Jen. I'd also say just on a very like uh, editorial practical level, like one thing that's helped with working with reporters is actually just having them tell you the story first and not putting a script in front of uh, in front of them and, and getting them comfortable with just t telling you the story. And sometimes like putting your name before the first track uh, that they're reading. So they're literally saying like, Leela. In 1999, da da da, da like, and they just—it just kind of breaks down a layer for them. That feel like bullet pointing a feature that way. Bullet pointing a feature. I mean, we kind of yeah. Do I that. tell, I tell, yeah. yeah, I tell reporters, you know, to get into your normal conversational voice, put so or you know before you know the start of the paragraph, and it's gonna get edited out anyway. And Jen has a thought. Are you gonna say that's wrong? No, <laughs> she's my editor. <laughs> Just like a trick that I like to do is sometimes sit down with the reporter and have them tell it to you and just transcribe for them. So instead of having them write it and you tell them to go rewrite it like yourself, just say, just tell me. Just look at me. Don't look at your computer. Don't look at a paper. Tell me and then just write down what I said. Like that's how you talk. Hi. Um, so the answer might just be go to therapy. Um, but <laughs> I'm so like, or I'm thinking like early, early, early. Like I'm, I'm constantly thinking about identity and different intersections, and like have done some work around Jewish stuff, and also like want to do more about my Argentinian family. But I think I struggle with even the comfort with the identity piece. So it's like hard for me to even imagine wanting to make a show about it or know who my audience is too, because I think there's. Yeah, again, the fear of the insider-outsider, too, if like, people are knowing about something, and then that's going to create, I don't know, animosity or some way. And then also, if you've ever had like a personal struggle and even understanding what it is that you wanted to put out there. Mm-hmm. Ooh, you should listen to Good Muslim, Bad Muslim um, by Zahra Noorbakhsh and Tanzila Ahmed, I think. I mean, talk about talking about things within Muslim life that can be controversial or can be, you know, problematic for some people or, but they do it in such a great way that it's, it's very conversational. It's like two girls just talking about their life. And I think people can relate to that, that what, if, if you, if you, if your topics that you're talking about are kind of those personal, maybe touchy, things, it helps, I think, when you're using, it helps more when you're using your conversational voice. Because it feels like, again, you're just like a fly on the wall. You're listening in on these two regular normal people. They're not journalists, you know. Um, and it becomes real and it becomes normal. 
you know, I feel like if you are using your journalist voice, if I don't know if you are like in the news or a reporter, then it seems like, oh, you're telling me this as fact. This is wrong. Da, 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 and then you start getting the barrage of, of angry people. But if it's two people talking, this is two people talking. And I feel like just making it more casual, making it more conversational may solve some of that. Um, that's what I think. Thank you, for, thank you for existing. Um, I was wondering if you had, like, in your own routine, sometimes it can feel like you're really siloed into your own work and world. Um, sometimes you can feel really siloed into your own work and world, and I was wondering like, what you build into your day-to-day -to, -day to sort of get yourself out of your own bubble to, to see and understand the, the landscape of what is around you. Um, and if there are any, like, very practical things, like newsletters or ideas or brainstorming sessions you have with each other that, like, you could build into that uh, discovery process. Of each other? Of, of the, the kinds of things that you want to cover or, like, say out. Yeah. I mean, we're constantly learning from each other. Yeah. With every single episode, we, you know, at the point that we start thinking, like, con conception, to like research, to, you know, I learned so much about Leela and where she's, you know, kind of coming from. She learns a lot about me. Um, and even for myself, and if you hear the podcast, you'll, you'll hear this, that a lot of our episodes when we're talking about Africa, we are talking about Sudan and we go to Sudan and Leela makes fun of it sometimes like, oh, here we go, we're going to Sudan. Cause that's what I know and I'm aware of that as, um, as a shortcoming and I want to represent other African communities and also Afro-Caribbean communities and Af you know, Afro-Haitian, Afro-Cuban, kind of that non-American non black person. So I, I know that I need to do more of, of that. We, like as a podcast, we need to do that. So like um, signing up, like you said, signing up for newsletters, um, going on the Twitter feeds of like organizations that you wanna really understand kind of what their populations are thinking about, what the populations um, are talking about um, just following a bunch of people that you want to learn more about. Um, yeah, yeah, I think also um, it's, it's it can get exhausting too, right? Because my life is not all about these conversations that True. we're having. I'm sorry, Hanaba, it just isn't. Um, <laughs> but no, I'm, I think about other people that do uh, podcasts and do uh, shows that are based on identity and race and. I feel like, is there a support group for us that's producing this stuff? Because it's constant. It's constant thinking about these things and how to dissect them and how do I relay this message and am I offending that person? And, you know, it's, it's a lot to be thinking about. Um, so um, for me, I, I feel like, uh, you know, I have another job that's a, a very different type of, of, of production. Um, so that's a bit of a disconnect for me to, you know, stay focused. Uh, but I definitely feel there are times where I'm feeling like, you know, you follow all these places and you subscribe to all these newsletters and you're on Twitter all the time. And it's just like I kind of need to, to hike or, you know, just be still. Um, so there are times I think when when Hana and I might have a break of, of talking, you know, we're not like brainstorming. And then we just come back together and we're like, OK, did you read this? Did you do that? You know, like that sort of thing. But it's kind of nice to give yourself also some space. Um, with this political environment, and when you're focusing on a podcast like this, it's just 
you just need to take care of yourself. And I, I mean, I, I think I can talk for a lot of people or we can talk for a lot of people when we say this is a, this is not a full-time job, right? This is a passion project. It's a side gig. Everybody has their day job. People have families, people have lives. So, you know, do, but, and so taking on a difficult podcast with like issues of identity and all of this, it, it can be exhausting. So self-care y'all. Mm-hmm. Hi, um, so I, I produce uh, for the Magic Americans, which is a podcast. Yes, and um, one thing that we uh, found is that um, we're independent now. We were really young. Um and you were saying something about this earlier that there's always this like we want you to we want to have uh, shows with hosts of color. Maybe just because we know we need it, but but maybe because we genuinely do, we want to you know diversify. But then we don't actually diversify like our marketing uh, strategies or our ways of reaching out. And so then there's just this like oh no the show didn't work out like bummer it didn't get it's like this huge reach. Whereas like our show hosted by white men talking about white men things seems to be doing fine. So we don't know why it's not working over here. Um, and I wondered if you had any just tips or advice about like how you can kind of get folks to think differently about how they might put shows out there that are different instead of just trying the same things and being like, oh no, it didn't work. Thing is, if you put in the effort in the marketing, it can happen. Leela's a marketing person, go. <laughs> okay. She is, it's her um, background business. I, I actually, yeah, I, I did do marketing before I started doing po- podcasting and so, um, these conversations that we were having with maybe networks and sponsors about like, I'm not sure how to market this show and I'm not sure what sort of sponsors would be into the show. Um, I just I just think they're excuses. Um, I think that when you are dedicated to putting a show out there, you do the things that we're doing. We collaborate with so many different organizations. We're constantly reaching out to people. You know, we've got the number to Shea Butter and, you know, like all these places. Dark and lovely. Dark and lovely. Like we've contacted all these places. And, you know, we know that, that uh, African-Americans are... are multi-billion dollar consumers. So it it becomes an excuse um, when people aren't putting the effort into it. And I've got to say there have been opportunities for us um, to work with with some people um, who didn't have a plan and didn't actually ask us what we thought the plan should be. And so this idea of this baby that you've created, this, this project, this baby that you have, being kind of associated with a network and being lost within it because there's no one dedicated to ask to f- figuring out how to market or what sort of sponsors might be interested in it. It's just like, well, why, why is that even a uh, something we'd be interested in? You know, because we really want to feel like there's someone dedicated to to lifting something like this, and it's really not that difficult, honestly. You know, if if they're finding the partnerships for you said the two white Everybody guys. Everybody else. Uh, two, two white guys talking, like you said. What's the difference in finding the, uh, the sponsorship for or, or doing a marketing campaign for two non-white guys talking? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it becomes this excuse. Um, it's about walking the talk. It's kind of like our yeah. diversity conversation that we've had for like a decade or more in journalism. We need more diversity. We need 
people, you know, di- diverse reporters. And we're still at a point where the large majority of people is white. Like you have to do the work. You can't just talk the talk. You have to make the effort. And that's, I think, like like the marketing. Thing. And I just think ask the podcaster. Ask them if 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 you have a person that's creating content for a different, you know, demographic, ask them who would you reach out to to market to this? What ideas do you have? No one no one's asking us, you know. What we're telling you. We're just telling you, but no one's And asking. again, she's a business person and a marketing person. Hello. Um, well, thank you again for this. This was awesome. It was so great. Um, and I, so I, I work at a really lovely station that is predominantly white. And I think, though I don't know, I guess that some stories about race and identity don't get told because just like when it's a bunch of white people, we're, I think people get afraid of telling them wrong and like that would seem almost worse than not doing them. And so I guess, do you have any recommendations for how to approach these stories in a way that, I don't know, just works for for the people who are in the stories and for just people in general? Because I, I find myself approaching that and getting a little nervous, you know? That's a hard, that's a difficult question. I mean, my answer would be hire people of color, but you're saying in cases where that is not, that's not happening, what can we do in the meantime kind of thing? Hire people of color also. <laughs> Right. What can you do in your station, in your place, or as a reporter reporting? Uh We have um, an editor from NPR. Hello! Former editor from NPR, Allison McAdam. I'll just half of what I'll say, you know, Lily can say too, because she wrote about it and you published it, but talk to people, ask them what matters to them. Don't just interview them and look for the quotes that you need for the story. You need to, and like I would say that I acknowledge my like whiteness and all of this too. I'm not the perfect person to say this either, but um, but I think that when people are scared to tell those stories, they're also scared to have the conversations about how they should tell those stories with the people that they might be telling them about. And the more that you let their voices be heard and let them tell the story, the more true it is going to be. Um, that's, that's my one. Thank you, Allison. Yeah, thanks. Consulting, for sure. I'm sorry. Let me, yeah. Asking, 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 consulting, consulting throughout the process of the reporting. And the more people, the better. Ginger Eye, we loved your panel. <laughs> Thank you so much for this uh, really great panel. I'm just taking notes the whole time. So one question I have is just about your process of making something you all do really well, which is to have a conversation which feels conversational um, and yet really has that energy as engaging. Because and I'm, and I'm thinking about podcasters who are not doing this full time don't have a lot of time to be involved in like huge production. So we're gonna probably have to do something that's based on like a conversational model, but making, you know, like how you approach the difference between just knowing that that conversation is really gonna be getting the market engaging. It's kind of like, you know, I'm just a little bit about the process of what you So some of our, we, we have various formats. We do come from a reporter background, both of us. So there's 
like from the get-go, we knew the stoop was going to be conversational, but also it's going to include reporting. We're going to go to the field and get that tape. We're going to get the interview with the expert person who's going to talk. We're going to have many voices, which, like you said, we also have our other jobs and our families and stuff. That takes a lot of time. That's not sustainable to, to do that with every episode. So we started playing with format, and we said, okay, this episode right here we're going to have just us talking and maybe one person, right? Or um, two two interviews and a lot of sound design, right? Uh, or, or, you know, Leela has an episode, has a couple of episodes in season two where she gets really personal. And so it's, it's a lot of her and, like, one other person um, and, and tape. Like, you could pull historical clips an archive tape to really spice up your 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 story but i mean the engaging part is that you're talking about it from like for like a month at least so we know the material we feel it we own it we're comfortable with it cuz you can tell when somebody just read the thing yesterday that they're supposed to be doing today mm-hmm. it comes through in the delivery and again it's like mm, you don't sound sure of yourself, there's something off there, but but just be in it from like the earliest possible. Like we create the plan for our season, you know, at least like six months out, yeah. right? We know what our episodes are going to be, and we start planning for each one of them. It's not like hmm, what are we going to do next week? We that's not us, and so plan, plan, plan. And I do think also one of the things that we've noticed is there's certain episodes that cause for more dialogue between us and it gets pretty personal where Hanal will bring up something else and we'll just be like, really? That happens in your community? Wait, let's talk about this some more. And we start realizing, actually, we don't need that that expert interview to come in. Actually, this is a conversation we can have. You know, Let's do the research and, and do this episode based on the research that we've done and have a conversation. So get the numbers and get the stats. Get, yeah, so the format sort of changes. And then for every episode that we do, we have a fact sheet that we make and, it, and we keep um, a research sheet that has all the statistics and things that we could bring up to talk about in that episode. So it's pretty formulaic, like what we're doing. But from early on, and yeah. that's why our podcast, some people, you know, they uh, email us saying, can you talk about this? Why aren't you talking about this thing that just happened last week? Because we're not, you know, we're planning six months in advance. We're doing topics that we know we're doing. We're not responding to news that's happening right away. But then, for example, when Charlottesville happened, we were about to air our episode, uh, You Called Me African Booty Scratcher. And so we made the decision to not air that episode at that time. Um, because it it was a sensitive time. And so quickly... (laughs) We scrambled. We were up till midnight putting together what that episode would be. Um, And luckily, we had some pieces that were sort of just non-narrated things that we had worked on. That we did for our station. That we did for our radio station. We were able to use that. So things became like a healing kind of episode. But that is the stoop, people. That is Thank you guys so much for coming. Okay, that was the Q&A from the second presentation of this session. Now, here's the Q&A from the first day. Hi, everyone. My name is Janina, uh, starting a podcast. And I have a question about when your authentic self make it in the way of a mess. I hear, I hear noise. Anyway, um, 
your authentic self may get in the way of a message. So I have a science podcast, and I want to obviously tell the story in my authentic self, but I can't, you know, get it wrong. Um, so some parts of telling or teaching can't always be authentic or can it? And so I guess the question is, how do you kind of go between when your authentic self may not uh, directly align with what you're trying to get out? I need specifics. What do you mean? <laughs> like, for so for example, example um, in my pilot episode, so my podcast is called In Those Genes. Um, it's a podcast that uses genetics to help black folks uncover their lost identities. And in the very first episode, I need to define like what a gene is. Um, and so I'm not used to explaining that as my authentic self, because in my industry I have, well, I don't have to code switch, but I've been taught to code switch. Um, but at the same time, I want to deliver this message in a way that is received and understood without getting it wrong. So trying to find that balance, right? Like how would you tell it, how would you say that thing to to like Cal right there. You know what I mean? Um, I think striking the balance is you, you wanna be yourself. And this idea that we can't talk scientifically while being ourselves is what I'm hearing, right? Uh-uh, no, we gotta get that out of our heads. You can talk about anything, philosophy, science, whatever it is in that, in that, in that, in that voice. And I think what you're, what you're feeling is what we've all kind of dealt with before in terms of the public radio voice and what Glenn was talking about. It's just like, do I lose my authority when I talk like this, right? And that's something that's changing and that like we need to change, I feel like. So I'm just gonna encourage you to, you know, even if it's like a word this long, um, you know, just stay true to yourself. Just say it, say it like it is. And don't feel that there's a contradiction. Don't feel, like try, just repeat it over and over again. This is something we do a lot in radio, right? Is to just record and listen, record and listen, record and listen. Do it in your, you know, real voice. Do it in your reportery voice or your scientific voice that, you know, your authoritative voice that you're talking about. And as, the more you practice doing it in your authentic voice and be relaxed with it, you know, you, you, you'll get used to it. And the audience will get used to listening to you talking about science in your voice, which is so great, so important. That's what I think. Um, well, this is not a question, but more of a comment. I feel that with the age of the internet, where we, um, there's more room for diversity of what we could, we were allowed to hear from before it was just certain networks and that was all the voices you could hear. Certain radio stations was all that you could hear. But I think with the podcast and with the internet, a lot of things have opened up for people. And I know as a teacher, it makes a huge difference for my students when they can have, when they can hear um, from someone else that sounds like them. Hi, my name is Halima. Um, I recently became the host of a podcast after um, working on it for three weeks um, because our, our old host left and it, it just happened really fast and so my onboarding into the host position um, was initially kind of like putting out a fire as opposed to this really intentional decision that 
this is the direction we want our podcast to go in and this is the sound that we want. Um, but I think that we're in this moment where there's like such a hunger to have a person of color or someone from an underrepresented group as the sound or as the face of your work. Um, however, I don't really feel like a lot of producers or people who have a lot of experience in the industry know how to write for us yet. And I'm wondering if you have any experience working with scripted content and being edited by somebody who's always written for somebody who's white or male or, um, yeah, that's, that's my question. I can talk about that with Crossgrass. Yeah, I mean, we can, yeah, we can talk about working in the pu public radio sphere. I think like in 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 our case and and especially like with um, as a reporter like a lot of the writing that we did we wrote ourselves um, in our voice and it was really encouraged I think from the the radio station that we worked at at, at KLW um, but I do understand that there is I mean I have never had someone written, write for me. And I can't, but I actually am now writing for other people. So I understand like that, that dynamic. Um, but I think that you just have to have a really strong point of view about like how you would speak. And if there is someone writing scripts for you that you should be able to interject and say, this is actually how I would write this. There's plenty of hosts that work for major stations and major outlets they get a script handed to them, and you see it's just completely marked up because they're like, wouldn't say that, I don't talk like that, this is how it goes, blah, blah, blah. And I think that you need an ally, you know, where you work that could say, yeah, actually, you know, we're gonna give you the outline of how we would script it for you, but this needs to be in your own voice. I don't know. It's like pushing back, uh, those of us who've done stories for radio, it's like pushing back um, on your editor a little bit, right? Going back and forth with that editing process. And one of the things that we really focus on at KLW, at least we do a lot of training, is you know editors should be able to receive that pushback, especially in regards to style, language. I don't. I wouldn't say this word. I would say it like this. You know, all of that. Um, and again, just having somebody somebody there that is open that is open to that, and really standing your ground. I think, you know, if it's maybe maybe since you're new, maybe you can flip the script and say, "Can I write the scripts?" I don't know. Maybe that's a possibility. That sounds and like they work. Can, and they can be the editor. <laughs> I mean, it's a solution that you could write the scripts and they can edit the the script and then go back and forth that way, perhaps. Are there any editors in, in the house that want to add into I see Jason DeRose. I, <laughs> I do see a Jason DeRose in the house. And has he? Hi, I'm Tiny English with WHYY. We have a health and science podcast, and I'm the editor of that. And I would say that the time for the layer of you, so that you're you know, not taking someone's stuff and then going on air, I don't know what your podcast is, but building in the time for you to make the script your own. I think it's nice to have that help with someone helping you write and shaping what the the thing is, but have someone build in the time so that you can make it your own, and then everybody wins. Right. Mm -hmm. Can here, we have here. Jason respond to that as well? Hi, I'm Jason DeRose. I'm an editor at NPR. Um, I think it's an editor's job to help the reporter or the host like develop their own voice and help bring out their own voice. Like, I'll just give this example. I, I have some reporters who write pieces for me that can say the word queer as second reference after LGBT 
comes off sounding perfectly natural like they would actually say it. I have another reporter who breaks into a cold sweat, and I don't make him say it. So I, I, I try to think, can this person deliver this line? And it's always a conversation. It's never, you must say this line. But it's a conversation with the Hey, my name is Dave, and I host a, a daily show on Oregon Public Broadcasting. Um, and I, I like to think of our audience as, as general as a public radio audience can be. And I, I take it, um, I, it, I, it hit home when you said that there's a lot of over-explaining over in public radio. I think it's super true, and I feel like I'm probably as guilty of it as anybody on a daily basis on our show. But I also think of it as part of my job because the flip side of the reason for it, as we all know, is, is noble. It's, it's for inclusion and, and honoring, or at least bringing people along who don't know what something is. And I'm just wondering, to the extent that we want, the, if we do want the biggest audience possible, how do you think about when to explain something and when not to? I mean, you had your, your Yanni example just now in a whole you know, hour about this. You took a second to, to tell many of us what the word meant. Um, and I'm just trying to figure out, for, for all of us, <laughs> how you think about when we should explain something, and when we just let it go, and those who know, know, and they'll like that it wasn't explained, and we won't worry about the ones who didn't, and they'll Google it, or they won't. Again, it's the picking of the battles. Like earlier, for the 99% Invisible piece, you explained Jerry Curl, but when it was like the soul glow, you didn't. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a tough question, and it's a dance, and it's complicated, but you feel it, I feel like. When you're in the story, um, we used to do like a newsroom poll, just like, who knows what this is? Mm -hmm. But we have, honestly, we have one of the most diverse newsrooms, so that's not fair. <laughs> yeah, that also helps, right? I, I mean, that, that helps, yes. I mean, when you have that, di again, it's going to be the, the diversity talk that we've been having for a million years. Lord. Um, and when you have that, those diverse people in the newsroom or, you know, there's just, I feel that sentiment will be stronger of let them figure it out you know, when you have that support around you. But if you have, you don't have that support around you, you're gonna tend to explain. So in the public radio sense, there is the editor, there is the news director, there, they are making decisions about this with you. And you can push and push and push, but again, you have to decide how hard you wanna push, to what extent you wanna push, what, would, what, that, what that would mean for your story, for your, job in some cases, I don't know. And that's the thing about coming from a place where we work in a diverse environment and, and, um, and thinking about, like, we don't need to explain. Like, we don't feel like we want to explain, and we just don't. And I also feel that um, a, lot of, a lot of this can be avoided if you let the tape explain. Um, it doesn't necessarily need to be the reporter or the voice that's narrating the piece that's breaking down like the definition of something for you. Sometimes, you know, it, it can be a feeling like you can say, you know, like I remember, I'm just remembering a story where someone said, you know, someone practices Santeria and no one broke down Santeria is a religion that's a blended Catholicism in Yoruba, you know, from Africa. Like no one said that. What you heard was the, the drums, you know, and you heard someone singing and you got this feeling and they're speaking in Spanish and you're like, oh, that's a that's a an African inspired, you know, 
Latino religion. So it was, it, there are certain things I feel that we, we tend to think that we need to over-explain in the narration and not let the, the tape give you that feeling, which is just as, as powerful sometimes. And the public radio audience we know is a somewhat educated audience. So we can do that in terms of not explaining, you know, um, I remember somebody somebody said, was it somebody in here? No. Um, one reporter was talking to me, and she, she had to push back on. She was doing a story, and she referenced Toni Morrison. Uh, that was who my was story, that? girl. That was, was that our you? piece. That was in our podcast. I don't know what she's talking about. <laughs> that was not in our podcast. Okay, go Toni ahead. Toni Morrison? Go ahead. Song no. of Sol Solomon? We'll talk about this later. Okay. <laughs> Um, but the editor was like, you have to explain who Toni Morrison is. And she said, I'm not explaining who Toni Morrison is. They should know who Toni Morrison is. And that's where that, you know, I stood. So it's, it's complicated, but we err towards don't explain. Just also, like, really, just to also respond, and we know that's code switch, the explanatory commas, it's like, we're not explaining things to black and brown people, it's for white people. So it's like, when you're asking yourself, like, what do I need to explain? You're asking, like, do white people need to understand this? And that's also something that I think we should th just think about when we're doing, like, and that's like a thing that's coming. Uh, hi, everybody. My name is Morgan. Um, I guess I have a question about moving goalposts. So people will say um, something cannot be done, and then you do it. And then, like, the people at these institutions, because I'm a producer in public radio, will say, well, now that you've proven it can be done, who's your audience? And you're like, the people you don't have yet. So how do you, I mean, at what point do you cut your losses and say you are not serious about reaching this audience you've been claiming for years you want to, and you do it on your own? One of the things that's happening, there's a lot of talk about diversity and diversifying our workplace and diversifying our audiences. It's been happening for a long time. And then the question is, like you said, like, what are you actually doing and how are you doing that? Um, I think that, that what needs to happen is like, actually, we just need to start calling people out on it. Um, I think that a lot of times we are really complicit and, and kind of let things slide because when we do push to tell a story in a certain way or, um, you know, we're two, two people doing a podcast and we get the feedback that, oh, we, our network already has a, a podcast with two black women. Um, it's just like, well, why isn't there space why, for another podcast with with two black women or two black men or whoever, you know? Like, why does there have to be when one? 75%, like according to this, of podcasts are hosted by white men. So, yeah, so it's like, why does there, why is there just room, like this small space that's designated for podcasts of color? And I think that right now, like we're actually in a really great position in terms of being an independent producer and doing what you want to do and how you want to do it. And if people catch on, they catch on. I do feel, especially for, for us, that's kind of what, what we've been doing. That's what's happened. And we don't have a network. You know, nope. we don't have people throwing our, their, you know, advertising dollars at it. We have had offers. And, and I think it's just about you sticking to like what feels right for you. Um, and calling people out on it. You gotta call them out. And Leela wrote a whole um, a article mm -hmm. about all of this for Transom, so you wanna look it up and read it. 
All right, hi, um, I'm Sarah. Um, people may have heard me talk about this before, but I work at um, a station in Woods Hole on Cape Cod, um, and um, I'm like uh, one of the only Asian people, or at least that I interact with at that station. Um, there's another Asian person there, and she and I kind of had been facing a lot of like, whatever, racial discrimination and everything, and we sat down and we recorded a conversation, and it was super freeing, and we kind of tried to take it in the direction of having it as a podcast on the station, but kind of just curious, I feel like um, in like having our conversation, we recorded a couple conversations, we circulated one of them, and we've gotten a lot of feedback from a lot of people, and I was kind of curious, like in terms of getting a podcast like on your station, A, like a lot of people have um, brought up the concern that like I am a station reporter there, and some of them feel like it's like against me being the station reporter to have like a podcast that's so personal that addresses something so personal so that's one question and my other question is just like how do you know a lot of the feedback that i'm getting is from white people because the entire station is pretty much white and so how do you kind of like decide like is this a viable podcast because it's just two asian women speaking or do we need to like bring in other voices or like does it just need to be something else entirely like I just don't know where to draw the line. How do you say like, this is an important thing and people need to hear it versus like, okay, we gotta like broaden it up. And I'll answer the, your second question. You keep it with your two Asian girls. That you, you do not change a thing, let the world change. <laughs> Ooh, she's getting all existential. Uh, we're tired, I am tired. Um, yes, yes. I mean, I would love to listen to, to your podcast and it can be discouraging and it is discouraging all the stuff that we've had to listen to. Um, you know, it ha it's like, it's ridiculous, honestly, in this day and in this age, but not surprising, ridiculous, but not surprising. But that's why you got to push. Can I, oh, so go ahead. Go, no, go ahead. I'm, I'm, mm. Can I also oh. just say, I think that's one of the things when we're talking about audience, what we've run up against with our, our audience and thinking about our audience is that, like we were saying, we intentionally made it for an audience, a very specific audience and realized we were getting a lot of feedback from a lot of white listeners. There's emails and DMs from, you know, white guys in like middle America saying, I heard that episode on black hair and I never even thought about that. And thank you. I learned so much. Um, it's amazing the feedback that we're getting from who is not our intended audience. And it's really made us think like, you know, this conversation around audience is so, it's so complicated and complex, but it's, it still helps us keep our voice and our mission. And there's also like this fascination and this interest that people have about listening to, in our case, it's, you know, two black women talking about the black diaspora. In your case, it's, you know, two Asian women talking about yeah. whatever you want to talk about. And I just feel that, that you don't know who's going to be interested. Like it doesn't. And I, I also feel that there's certain radio stations that might be a little bit more open to, to, you know, promoting your podcast or actually putting a segment of it on, on the air. And that might be something that you might consider at your station. Um, but again, it goes also back to these talks about diversity. If there's there's this, these conversations that are happening about wanting to diversify the audience, and when they have opportunities, like possibly an excerpt from your podcast on there, it becomes, you know. Is there a problem story. with you becoming a, having a podcast or hosting your podcast at the station? That's that like there's a difference because you can do your own project 
separately like we did. I mean, we started off at KALW. We're an independent project. We have kind of an agreement with them. They allow us to use studios. We credit them at the end of our podcast, kind of a win-win. But we are at a station that encouraged that, sees itself as an incubator of that. Uh, But if the problem is a matter of you're a reporter, not a podcaster, almost like when you become a pot, when you when you do something personal and talk about your personal issues and life, that that takes away from your journalistic like integrity. integrity is that yeah. their point? Yes. Uh huh. What do you? That's is there anyone out? Is there anyone out here who has experience with that that can answer? Podcaster versus journalist voice, or like push back from your staff. Hi, Sarah. Um, so I don't have, I guess I would just say like my tip is a couple of things. One, um, I'm not black and I'm here listening to two black women about their, their panel. Um, I've always watched like, you know, when I was younger, I grew up watching like Moesha and Family Matter and Fresh Prince and every, like every show that was at the time only either black or white and that was it because I related to them more than I did to anything else that was on TV because there was no Mexican shows, which is what I am. Um, and I think that I always hear like, oh, but like, how is this gonna appeal to like our larger audience? Um, or I always did in like the decade that I have been in public radio. And um, I'm always like, people of color always are looking for other people of color to listen to. Like, we don't care what you are. We just need, like, something. (laughs) And I promise you, like, we're going to be interested in it the way that we are with television and magazines and everything else. And also, like, white people watch all of the people of color shows, too. Like, you don't need to appeal to them. Like, they're already going to be interested. Like, there's white people in this room. Um, Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, the reporter versus reporter voice versus podcast voice. Um, so I used to be a reporter, uh, or I mean, I was a like a public radio station reporter, and I, I'm at um, Pod Money, and so I'm new to podcasting. Um, Congratulations! So I really, oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, so I don't really have. I didn't really get any kind of pushback on on that kind of thing. But one way that I will say that I would sneak things in. Um, when I wanted to have like my cultural moments in my pieces before I was like enough in the industry where people just let me do it because they had like respected me enough. Um, I would just like, I always wanted to use like untranslated Spanish in my pieces. And for like a long time, people wouldn't let me in like California, in Miami, Florida. Um, There was a time in public radio when like they would say that I couldn't pronounce like Puerto Rico, like Puerto Rico, and I had to say it the other way, and I like, Puerto Rico. truly don't know how to say it, like I'm like, Puerto, Puerto, Puerto Rico, like I like, cannot do it, meanwhile, like I can say Mexico in English, just, so, just for some reason, I can't say Puerto, the other one, and anyways, so it, um, it has gone better, because now I like say Puerto Rico all over the place, and I say Venezuela, and, and no one says anything, so which is great, um, but I would do like, um, in field translations, like someone would be talking to me in Spanish and I would just like repeat it like, oh, so you put salt and pepper on your fish before you fry it? Oh, okay. Because they would say it in Spanish or like whatever it was, um, or you just like find some way to make it like a funny thing or like some moment and then they just kind of let you like 
sneak in. Because it's a good scene. Stuff, with, it's like a good scene. Yeah, and good take. Like, um, until they give you the respect to just like do more of what you want. You just kind of have to be sneaky with that. Hello. Um, I have a question about the whole like who is your audience question. It really seems like a fake question to just kind of point out the fact that they don't like the fact that this is not intended for white people or a larger audience. Um, and basically, like, when you say that, like, this is a podcast for black people and this is about black culture and this is not an explainer about black culture for people outside of black culture, it doesn't seem to be enough. And I think it's kind of built on this idea that black people don't listen to podcasts or black people don't listen to public radio. Um, and I think that's obviously not true. And then, um, if there aren't a lot of offerings, like there's obviously your show and some other great shows, but like you said, 75% of podcasts are hosted by white men. Um, so how do you, I guess, one, get people to understand that like, or what conversations are you having to get people to understand that one, this audience like does exist, there are black women who wanna hear black women talking. Um, and two, that like more people would listen to podcasts if there were things that they could relate to. Yeah. I feel like we went through all sorts of emotions of trying to figure out where we are and how, where, what our, our voice is and who our audience is. And, and when we kind of landed on it, I feel like in the beginning when you start a podcast, and I think it's not just for doing a podcast that's about like uh, people of color, but everyone starting a podcast, you're trying to find a home for it, right? You're trying to find a network. You're trying to find some money to fund it. You know it is expensive. Editors, engineers, buying music, getting the artwork done. These things, they start to add up. And so, you know, the, at first, the initial idea is you're looking for a network, right? You're looking for a net. You want some support. Um, and so I think a lot of our initial uh, reactions to this were the reactions from networks of, oh, we already have two, two black women in podcasting or, you know, um, yeah, that, I don't our, think that'll reach, I don't think that'll reach like your, our... Your, your podcast, what, uh, can, cannot reach sponsors or like we couldn't, we wouldn't know how to find sponsors. We wouldn't know how to find sponsors for, for your, your podcast, podcast, things like that. Um, I have a background in marketing, so I call bullshit on all of that. And, you know, I think that, that right away, like we, me and Hanan just kind of looked at ourselves one day and said, why are we doing this? Mm -hmm. Like, why are we doing this? And it, it, we decided we're not trying to make a million dollars. We're not trying to be famous. We're not trying to uh, do those two things, which I think most podcasters are trying to do. Um, and, and we're doing because we love these stories and we love this, that, that we can to have these conversations and turn them into something. And then we're now at a point where we did get some funding from people and it's, and it's, it's really great. We're actually doing a, a showcase with Radiotopia. Shout out to Radiotopia for, um, for supporting Stoop. Um, and, um, and we started realizing like, we're gonna do this regardless. You know, irregardless, Look, irregardless. Ooh, Lord. Some people say I've irregardless, On but we're going to do it. You know, we're going to make this thing. And I think when we looked at ourselves, looked at each other and we said, why are we doing this? And we decided like the, the fact that we do have funds to now hire some producers to produce content for us and that we can get so many more voices out here and that there's more stories to be told and more collaborations to be had. It became like this, this drive for us that was bigger than a network and it was bigger than the money and it was bigger than these responses about like we already have this we already have that so it becomes it's really interesting because you see what podcasting like it's almost like you know when it becomes when you don't find space for yourself in these larger you know avenues you start creating your own 
So where's the BET of podcasts? Where's the network that's like a lot of, you know, podcasts of color? I feel like that's happening. That's starting to happen, that, that people are starting to support each other. And it's just interesting because it happens in TV and it happens in music. It happens in all these different areas. And you see something new happening in podcasting and you want, everyone wants to be involved and, and, and feel that support. And you realize you don't get it. And so you just do your own thing. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of in a nutshell, like I feel like the evolution for us has been like, you know what, why are we doing this? It's, it's not for the reasons that we've been told we can't do it, you know? Um, so, I mean, that's my answer. Hi. Um, I host a show, and I have no ability to hide my feelings at all. And so if I'm on the show talking about something that I'm really passionate about, I will like be very angry or like be very excited. And I don't use like a traditional, like neutral sounding radio voice when I'm reporting. Even if I'm like reporting a news story, I still like bring a lot of passion to it because it's a podcast. It's not like produced by a public radio station. I'm not required to seem neutral, but I worry that that makes me seem like less credible because I'm like, yelling about a thing instead of calmly reporting on a thing or used to reporters calmly reporting on a thing. So I was just wondering if you've ever been tone policed or felt like you had to tone police yourself in order to be taken more seriously. Uh, at the beginning of my radio career, yes. Right? You, you think there's one way to do the thing and that's what you're hearing all around you and that's what people are telling you. But over time, when you really hone your craft and kind of lean into your voice um, and do more reporting, then slowly, slowly, I feel like you, you become more comfortable in using your true voice and more comfortable asserting that and, and, and kind of telling your, 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 um, your producers and your editors, this is how I talk and this is how I'm going to talk. Uh, so I think it was a process for, for us, for me, for sure. But I'm talking about like, without dating myself, uh, that like the, <laughs> the late nineties and the early two thousands. Um, and so I feel like right now is a, is a different time. This is the time when like, I would be surprised if somebody, um, like brought something like up like that but in a serious way in terms of not being conversational it feels like that's the thing nowadays you know it's just like the stuff um that we've been talking about for a long time people are seeking that now which is be more conversational be yourself so um I don't know I, I I'd be surprised I I think if you use your voice there's more chance than not that uh people will enjoy it and people will like it and people will find it relatable and believable um, and that the higher-ups will fall in line. That's what I believe. <laughs>